0: Please remain standing for the reading of God's word from Romans chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 1 through 5. We'll be mostly considering just the first verse of this chapter, but it fits into this context. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I mentioned last Sunday that sometimes you're trying to sort of think ahead and give a title to a sermon, early in the week when that order of worship needs to go out and people need to be aware of what's happening. Um, the title that shows up in the bulletin even this morning was Judge Knot. Um, as I worked through this and and I went through it, I went through it again, I went through it again, and by the third go-around I decided that Judge Knot probably is more appropriate to next week, although we'll get there, um, and so I chose this title. We have met the enemy. Some of you may know the reference that that applies to, not in its original form, but in its later form, and we'll get there eventually as we go through Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. But let's start here. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14 Jesus, we're told, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, that's the audience. Here's the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Of course, there's more to the story, and we will come back to it. But holding that in the back of our minds, or maybe at the front of our minds, as a certain amount of context for what we're about to talk to, let's go back to Romans chapter two, verse one, where the Apostle Paul wrote, Therefore, you have no excuse, O men, every one of you who judges. And as always, whenever we find a therefore at the beginning of a verse or a chapter or a section of scripture, it requires a backward glance at the text that we've already considered. So even though we went over the last part of Romans 1 with some thoroughness last Sunday and the week before, we need to go back to it again. Even Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where we read, "...for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men." who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now they stand accused of suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness because verse 19 of Romans 1 tells us what can be known about God is evident, it's plain to them, because God has shown it to them. So if you have any inclination whatsoever to look at the world around and to say, well, yeah, I mean, lots of people look at the sky and the clouds and the mountains and the trees and they don't see the eternal power and divine nature of God. I don't think Paul got this quite right. Understand, Paul's not saying, I have looked at natural revelation and I see this there, so everyone else must see it there too. Paul is saying what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it To them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And why is all humanity left in this condition without excuse? Well, verse 21 for although they knew God, and that word know there is one of those. Greek words that's far more than just kind of a, an intellectual understanding that surely when we look at the world around and see all that has been made, there must be some higher power. The Apostle Paul is saying there was a time when humanity truly knew God, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. In other words, they did not worship him. That's what honoring God and giving thanks means. They did not ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, but they became futile, they became empty, they became worthless in their thinking and their foolish heart was darkened or were darkened. If we stop to think about what that's saying, that there are things which can be clearly perceived for which we might be held accountable in some in some way, it probably makes a certain amount of sense. As I was growing up, when I reached the age at which it became my sole exclusive responsibility to cut the grass, there were times when it could be clearly perceived by me and by everyone else that the grass probably needed to be cut about a week ago. And sometimes I would be willfully blind to this because there were other things that I wanted to do on a beautiful Saturday morning. But it was my job, and if I failed to notice long enough, there would be at some point, as the Apostle Paul might have said, a reckoning with my dad. Even so, in Romans 1, when the eternal power and divine nature of God have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made as they have by all people from the very beginning of the world, it's evident that the response required is worship. Worship, fall down and give praise to the living God who made these things and whose attributes have been revealed in the creation. So this is really pretty simple. What I'm saying is that when you perceive the grass is too long, then cut it. And when you perceive the eternal power and divine nature of God as being revealed in creation, worship. Worship even when that's happening in in ways that you might not choose in a particular moment. I went out for a walk last week, I think maybe it was a week before, i gotten up fairly early and I hit the happy trails and all of a sudden, there's just snow coming down all around me, big puffy flakes. And my first thought was, why is this happening? It's the end of April. It's not supposed to do the same. And I thought, no, because I had just written a sermon about this. And so I thought, God, these, these snowflakes, this is your grace falling down in front of me. And I want to praise you for just the revelation of yourself in the world that you made and for the moisture that this is going to bring to the ground and so many other things. When you perceive the eternal power and divine nature of God and the things that have been made, worship him. Nevertheless, that's not what humanity chose to do. Verse 22, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal or incorruptible would be a good translation, their God. For images resembling corruptible man and birds and animals and creeping things. And it's because they did that, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That should be obvious. Less obvious, at least it is at first glance, is the manner in which the wrath of God is revealed. Now, I previously mentioned the notion that we tend to think of the wrath of God as being revealed in F5 tornadoes or tsunamis, things like that, volcanoes blowing the tops off mountains. But as evangelist Justin Peters has said, the most fearsome act of God's judgment is when he simply gives people over to depraved minds. And as we saw last Sunday, we see that exactly in Romans 1. We find the expression, God gave them up, three times in this chapter. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And again in verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, And then finally in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, reprobate mind in older translations, to do what ought not to be done. There's a little bit of wordplay going on here in Greek, because when the apostle Paul wrote that God gave them up to a depraved or debased or reprobate mind, he's using a slightly different form of the same Greek word that describes the deeds that he's about to list. So you could translate this, God gave them up to an unfit mind to do unfit things. Or you could translate it, God gave them up to a debased mind to do debased things. You could say God gave them up to a reprobate mind to do reprobate things. And all of that sounds... Really serious, doesn't it? And what are those debased things? Well, we're left to extrapolate from the list of characteristics, and this is a partial list of characteristics that we find in verses 29 to 31. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. That's how we know this is a partial list, because we wouldn't have to work very hard considering all manner of unrighteousness to add to the characteristics that follow. I want to be clear, I think I said this before, but the list that follows, these are not verbs. They're adjectives. They describe not some individual act of some individual person at some particular moment in time, They describe people who are these things and who therefore live this way. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And all evil things come out of the heart. And he gives a list that's very much like this one. Paul says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy. Murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. So if you hear somebody going on about all the really depraved and reprobate and evil things that are included in Romans chapter 1, remember they also include disobedience to parents and envy and gossip, and slander, and such things. And if you put this list all together, generally speaking, these are not the kind of people that we would choose to have as neighbors. The thing is, that's a sentiment to which a certain Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 would doubtless have uttered a very, very hearty amen. I don't want to live next door to people like that. And maybe we're tempted to say amen just like the Pharisee. And maybe we're tempted even to pray, God, I thank you, that I'm not like other men. That I'm not like that guy. <laughs> Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, this tax collector. But here's the problem whether or not we would choose such people for neighbors, we have. Such people for neighbors, because we are such people as neighbors. Remember the therefore at the beginning of Romans chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, every one of you who ever looked at another person and thought, well, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. You have no excuse. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, what things? Well, all the things that we've been talking about, those things that we're so happy to find fault with in others. Those things. Now, that's not to say all the things and not all the time. Nowhere does Romans 1 suggest that everyone in the world is as bad as he might possibly be. And that applies to everyone. We were watching a little bit of a show that portrayed Adolf Hitler as a historical figure, and in all of the terrible, terrible, terrible things, he apparently was very kind to animals. So not even Adolf Hitler was as bad as he could possibly be. And the fact of the matter is, if everybody in the world was as bad as they could possibly be, There would be no world if every member of the human race was as evil and wicked as our hearts have the potential for us to be, there would be no human race. Because as we noted last Lord's Day in Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. All have sinned. Which is to say that these things and even the capacity for all these things Envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, foolish, faithless, heartless. All of those things can be found in every human heart. They are all present within every one of us. No one, not even one, as Paul will say in Romans chapter 3, can ever stand before God or before and say that right there that does not apply to me I'm not like that because we're all like that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God so not only are we without excuse for for knowing God and not worshipping him as God we're also without excuse every single time we judge another because as the apostle says you who judge practice the same things There's differences of opinion on whether Paul's still talking here to and about the Gentiles who might have some sense of right and wrong based on conscience or if he's now introducing the notion that the Jews had that they were acceptable to God just by virtue of who they were. I'll mention this next week. I think he's talking about both. I think he's talking about those of us who might have some innate sense of honor, whatever we call it, where we just want to say, well, you know, I'm not like that. (laughs) I'm not that kind of person. And I think he's talking about religious people, Jews in his day, but Christians today who want to take the word and apply it, but not to themselves, only to others it's a complex matter we'll come back to next Sunday. And it may leave us just wanting to retreat to Matthew 7, verse 1, where Jesus said, judge not, that you be not judged. Because that would be kind of easy. There's another place where he said, you know, if you want to see clearly to take the, the beam out of your brother's eye, take, take the splinter out of your own first, and then you will see clearly to do it. The thing is, splinters, have you ever had something like that in your eye? Piece of broken glass, wood splinter, piece of dirt from a sandstorm. If somebody comes along and helps you remove that, you will be grateful. Trust me on this one. All Jesus is saying is not, don't help someone who's in that position. He's just saying, be sure you're open to being helped yourself. When that happens, with the measure you judge, you will also be judged. I also find it interesting that judge not that you be not judged seems to be the one verse that almost every English-speaking person in the world can quote verbatim. And we're happy to do so every time someone points to a scripture that actually convicts us of some sin in our life. You wanna point to a scripture that's talking about some other guy? Yeah, sure, I'm on board. But when you get to that thing in my life, well, judge not. But before we simply say amen and move on with this, let me read Romans two verse one in context with the verses that come before and the verse that comes after. I'm gonna go back to chapter one, verse 28. 1, 32, though they, and again, as we'll point out later in the verse, they means we, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Again, that's a text that's been given a very narrow interpretation as if it applied to something that comes up halfway back through the passage. It comes up to all of this. It doesn't matter if you're talking about issues of human sexuality. It doesn't matter if you're talking about disobedience to parents. When we have teachers and administrators in schools who are literally encouraging children to disobey their parents, that's what they're doing. They're not only doing that themselves, but they're giving approval to those who practice them. This applies backwards through the whole of this passage. And then our text, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things, the very same things that Paul just talked about, the very same things that we know not only by scripture, but also by conscience, are worthy of death. And then this in the very next verse, Romans 2, verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now my point here is that the Apostle Paul just spent the last 15 verses of chapter 1, and he will spend almost well, the rest of chapter 2 and most of chapter 3, doing exactly what most people would describe as judging. Bringing the word of God to bear on the sins of the people. So was he disobeying Jesus? Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. Was Paul being disobedient to Jesus when he did this? when he said there are all these different categories of sin and people who fall into those sins and we know that those who do such things are worthy of death. Was he too without excuse? Let me borrow a phrase from him, may it never be. Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the key here is in those words, God's righteous decree in chapter 1 verse 32 and the judgment of God in chapter 2 verse 2. See, Jesus and Paul and everyone else who ever wrote in Scripture and said, don't, don't judge. Well, they're not talking about applying the word of God, generally speaking, across the board, not only to others, but also to ourselves. They're talking about the kind of judgment that was being practiced by the Pharisee in the parable that we started with. You all thought that I forgot about that, didn't you? But quickly, let's go back to Luke 18. Remember in the parable, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And there's a sense in which we should be glad (laughs) that not everybody is an extortioner or an unjust or or an adulterer or a tax collector. Imagine if The government had access to universal tax collectors. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But notice what he's doing and what he's not doing. He is holding himself up to the standard of other men. And especially those men that he perceives to be evil. God, thank you that I'm not like those folks. They're bad. They're bad. I wouldn't want to be like that. And I'm thankful that I'm not. What he's not doing is holding himself up to the standard of God's holiness. Which is exactly what he ought to have been doing. And it's so easy for us to behave the same way when we come to a passage like Romans 1. We read... Of those wicked, wicked people who failed to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Who were then given over to all manner of unrighteousness. And we read about what that looks like in some of their lives. And we say, God, I thank you that I am not like them. And God says, but that was never the goal. The goal was not to not be like them the goal was to be like me and by that standard the standard of God's infinite holiness well all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God all everyone as Walt Kelly once said the comic strip artist who wrote the strip Pogo for years and years he said we have met the enemy and he is us so let's be careful as we continue on in the book of Romans because there's always going to be a tendency to take the graceful parts, the good parts version of Romans and apply those to ourselves isn't it, what, wonderful Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We want to apply those gracious passages in our own lives. But when we hear the judgment parts, and there's plenty of them still to come, we have this tendency to apply those to others. And we need to apply them to ourselves first. Remove the beam from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brothers. Because in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So if you were here last week and you heard what I said about those verses in the middle of Romans chapter 1 and you went out saying amen and amen I really hope so and so was listening. He really needed to hear that. In other words, God, thank you that I'm not like other people. Then you completely missed the point because it was the tax collector who got it right the Pharisee went up to the temple to pray that's a good thing he started off with thanks that's a good thing but he was looking around at the people around him and saying thank you God that I'm not like that I know I have my faults but you know (laughs) not as bad as those guys the tax collector didn't look around to see if he could find someone more sinful than himself he could have There's nothing in scripture to indicate that this man's life was particularly reprehensible. People hated tax collectors on general principles. But they weren't all totally evil people. There were Pharisees who were worse than them. But this guy didn't come in and start looking around to see if he could find someone more sinful than himself. And I can't emphasize this enough. Nor did he look at the Pharisee who was standing some distance away and say... You know what, God, I thank you that I'm not like that judgy hypocrite over there. (laughs) I may not be a Pharisee, but, you know, I'd rather be a tax collector than to be like that. He didn't look around at all. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. In other words, the tax collector did not judge others, and he did not judge himself by others. He simply stood under the judgment of God, and then he repented. And here's the end of it. Jesus said, this man... The despised, hated tax collector. If you're Dutch and you're old enough or you have parents or grandparents who have told you stories, tax collectors were the quizzlings of first century Palestine. They were the traitors. They were the ones who sold out to Rome. But this quizzling. This tax collector, he's the one who repented, and because he repented, he went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Because the grace of God is not for people who deserve it. If God's grace was for people who deserve it, no one would ever receive God's grace and when God gives his grace to us and we say well I'm going to withhold it because those people don't deserve it we don't understand grace at all then no one deserves grace but God gives his grace mercy and forgiveness freely in Christ Jesus To all who recognize the reality that they cannot earn it or deserve it. I tried to emphasize a little bit when I was reading through the form for preparation. That line that says we do not come to this supper. As though we were worthy in ourselves. We come testifying that our only hope, our only worthiness is found in Christ alone. As a matter of fact, the only way you can come to this table in an unworthy manner is to believe somehow in your heart that you could ever be worthy of the sacrifice that's represented there. Because God does not give his grace to people who earn it or deserve it. He gives it to all who simply turn in faith through Jesus Christ to him alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And work in us according to your sovereign, powerful grace, all that is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.